0: Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22, please. Matthew chapter 4, 18 to 22. As we're continuing through our study of the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, we've seen his baptism and his temptation. Jesus' baptism commissioned him to priestly service, while his temptation demonstrated that he was a sinless and sympathetic priest. Matthew chapter four twelve moves the narrative forward one year. During Matthew's missing year, Jesus performed his first public miracle at the wedding feast of Cana in John two, one to eleven. He returned to Jerusalem, cleansed the temple, and cast out the Sadducees, John two, thirteen to twenty two. And while John continued ministering in Perea, Jesus ministered in Judea. And as the year progressed, John chapter 4 verses 1 to 3 says, Therefore when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. As it was not Jesus' time to die, he left Judea, moving his ministry to Galilee. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 16 tells us that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't go of His own will, but the will of His Father. And He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. He arrives in His hometown of Nazareth, and He entered the synagogue as was His custom and began to preach. However, upon hearing His preaching, upon hearing the denunciation of their sins, Luke 4, 28 to 30 records this, All the people in the synagogue at Nazareth were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing down through their midst, he went his way. And then Matthew 4.13 notes, Leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now picking up with Jesus' Galilean ministry, Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 17 focused on the preaching ministry of Jesus. He spent time teaching and healing in his Judean ministry. But with the start of his Galilean ministry, Matthew 4, 17 declares, from that time, Jesus began to preach. His sermons were expositional. He took a text, he explained the text, he applied the text. They were evangelistic, calling on people to repent and believe the gospel. And they were eschatological, pointing people forward to the day of judgment and the coming of the kingdom. And now in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 to 22, the focus shifts to the discipling ministry of Jesus. The discipling ministry of Jesus. Discipleship was central to the ministry of Jesus. Before ascending into heaven for the final time, until his return. Jesus commissioned his disciples, he commissions you and I, to continue doing what he started. He commands us in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen to 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I must pause here. Notice, it is a singular name. The name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The fact that these three beings share one name denotes the fact that these three are God and they are one. This is the triunity of the Godhead. Now, returning to our thrust here on discipleship, this commission contains six verbs. Go. Make disciples. Baptizing. Teaching. Observe, command. And of those six verbs, make disciples, matheteo, is the only verb in the imperative mood. Meaning that of all six verbs, it is the only one that is a command. And because make disciples is the only command in the text, it is the heart of the Great Commission. The command to make disciples means to cause others to, to follow Jesus through instruction. Now this commission is for all of us. Every child of God who claims to be a believer, everyone who professes Christ as their Lord and Savior, is a disciple, and we all ought to be making disciples. The question is, are we? Who have you discipled? Who has discipled you? Now, the object of that verb... Make disciples, is all nations. Nations, ethnos, it's in the accusative meaning that the action of making disciples is causative. The verb does not imply force, we're not forcing people to be disciples, we're not using duress to force them to be disciples, but rather because it's causative, we're convincing them, we're urging them to become disciples. We could literally render the verb make disciples this way. Convince them to become disciples. Urge them to become disciples. And notice the second verb, go. Now we read that in English and we assume go is the command. But go is not a command. It's a participle and it can be rendered as going. In other words, as you're going, make disciples. And it describes where we make disciples. Wherever we're going, that's where we're supposed to be making disciples. Then we're baptizing, the third verb. This is, tells us how someone is initiated into discipleship. In Acts 2.38, people said, what must we do? Peter says, you must hear the gospel, you must repent of your sin, believe the gospel, and be baptized. Now understand, friends, that baptism saves no one. But baptism is the, the proclamation that one is saved we find no unbaptized christian in the early church and so the first step in discipleship outside of salvation is baptism which makes which means this all christians are to be a disciple every christian is a disciple. You can't say, well, I'm a saved Christian, I'm just not a disciple. No, there's no such thing. That's like trying to tell me, well, Jesus is my Savior, but not my Lord. You cannot divide Jesus. You cannot divide ourselves. If we are Christians, we are disciples. And if we are disciples, we're to be making other disciples. Now notice the last three verbs. Teach, observe, command. This provides the how of disciple making. How do we make disciples? Disciples are made by learning the teachings of Jesus, by conforming their conduct to his standards, and by obeying the Lord's commands. Teach, observe, command. In Acts 11.26, Luke writes, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Notice, they weren't initially called Christians, but they were all called disciples. It wasn't until we get to Antioch that disciples are noted for being Christ followers. So all disciples are Christians, all Christians are disciples, and they must learn the teaching of Christ and conform to his standard of conduct. Have you done that? Are you learning Christ's teachings? And are you conforming your behavior to his standard? Now, the discipleship process, I believe, is threefold. I believe that there is an endowing, there is an equipping, And there is an engaging. And as we work out this process, as we endow, equip, and engage, disciples will mature and make other disciples. Discipleship is endowing. That is, we provide other believers with explicit, dependable instruction in Scripture so that they can be rooted, built up, and established in the faith. Who are you endowing with the scriptures. Paul writes in Colossians 2, 6 and 7, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him, be firmly rooted, be built up in him, established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. So there's a process there. You were instructed, now you have to instruct others. Discipleship not only endows it equips, It equips believers with the tools to diligently, accurately, and steadfastly study the word of truth. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. One of my favorite words, be diligent, spadazo. In other words, be zealously persistent. In other words, you need to put maximum effort into studying God's Word. And then you need to accurately handle it, or rightly divide it. Ortho to mayo. You must handle it with exactness and precision. With maximum effort, you must study the Word of Truth with precision. Studying with precision requires equipping disciples with the tools necessary to handle the scripture. We can't expect people to study precisely if we haven't provided them the tools so they can provide precisely or study precisely. And then discipleship is not only endowing and equipping, but now it's engaging. Engaging believers in the work of the ministry to put into practice all the things that Christ has commanded. Paul writes in Ephesians 4:12 for the equipping of the saints to do the work of service so that the building up of the body of Christ will be accomplished. That word equipped there, katartizmas means to make something fit for a purpose. And the purpose of endowing, the purpose of equipping is so that they can be engaged in service, the ministry Disciples are equipped and endowed with the scriptures so they can do the work of the ministry. There's no such thing in the Bible of of a believer, of a disciple, just sitting on the sideline. Nobody in the New Testament ever sat down and said, well, I'm retired from serving the Lord. Doesn't happen. Paul served the Lord well into his 80s. He served until they took his head. Peter served well into his 80s until... They hung him on a cross upside down. Every person you see, other than those who apostatized, served until they couldn't serve no longer. Now, their service changed. They may not have been able to do the things they did 20 years ago, but they were still serving. They're still serving. Ministry is not just for those in leadership. In fact, if you go back to Ephesians 4, you'll see that he gifted the church with leadership, and the purpose, the responsibility of the leadership was to equip the people so the people could serve, so the people could do the work of the ministry. And the body of Christ, the church, only grows when disciples are involved in ministry or service. In other words, being part of the body of Christ, being part of the church, is not for spectators, it's for participators. And the strength, the growth of the church will be directly related to the training of disciples. And as Matthew introduces us to Jesus, he now directs us to Jesus' discipling ministry. And while not going into great detail, Matthew does provide us with three observations. He shows us that discipling involves going, discipling involves calling, and discipling involves Following. Going, calling, following. Let's begin in verse eighteen. We're going to see the first observation of Jesus' discipling ministry in Matthew four eighteen and part of twenty one. Discipling involves going. It says Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Going on from there, verse 21, he saw two brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. Discipling involves going. Now, rabbis would travel from town to town, gathering disciples, or as they would call them, Tamodim, those who study, those who learn. And the rabbi would sit and teach, and the disciples would gather around them to listen and learn. Disciples were bound to the rabbi for life. And after several years of sitting under a rabbi and learning the law, learning the word of God, they would be commissioned themselves to go and teach. You know, in the Great Commission, Jesus instructed the apostles to make disciples as they, what? Go. Jesus instructed them to do exactly what he himself did. Go. Notice in verse 14, Jesus was going. He was walking by the sea. When he saw two brothers. And then in verse 18. uh, We see that again. Uh, They were going on from there. He saw two other brothers. Now we established last time in our study of Matthew 4. That Capernaum became the base of operation for the Galilean ministry. Now we know the city of Capernaum is located along the coast of the Sea of Galilee. And on a specific day here Jesus is walking. By the Sea of Galilee. Why? Was he just out for a morning walk on the beach? Well, if we look at the corollary passage in Luke 5, we find out that Jesus was teaching God's word. Listen to Luke 5.1. Now, it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, the lake of Gennesaret is another name for the Sea of Galilee. Gennesaret is a word, it's a transliteration of the Hebrew word Kinnereth, which means harp, and describes the shape of the Sea of Galilee. It's shaped like a harp. Josephus, the Jewish historian, formerly governor of Galilee, says this, "...all the ships that were upon the lake, which were found to be 230, in each of them he put no more than four mariners." Now that's interesting because it tells us that when Jesus is preaching he's there on the, on the, at the Sea of Galilee he sees these four guys who are fishermen these are four guys out of 920 fishermen that are out on the sea. So there is approximately 920 people on a day to day basis fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus spots four. Now three styles of fishing occur on the Sea of Galilee. Number one. Hook and line fishing, okay? You cast the line, you hook them, you pull them one at a time. Then there's small net fishing, okay? Small net fishing is where one man has a net and he casts it in shallow water attempting to catch small bait fish. And then there's the dragnet, which is a large fishing net attached to two boats that gets dragged through the sea in a semicircle. Floats would be attached to the top of the net, weights to the bottom of the net, and as the boat drugged the net, anything larger than the net gauging would be caught. Now notice the text tells us that Jesus saw Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. Next, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Now again, the corollary passage of Luke 5 tells us something interesting. Luke 5.10 says that James and John, who were the sons of Zebedee, were partners with Simon. So Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, John, these four guys, were in the fishing business together. They were partners. Now Andrew and John were the first two who had repented and placed their faith in the Messiah Jesus the previous year. Over in John chapter 1, verse 36 to 42, John the baptizer says, Behold the Lamb of God! And two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. So John and Andrew were originally following John the baptizer when they heard about the Lamb of God. And they began following the Lamb of God, Messiah, Jesus. Jesus said to them, Come and you will see. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him, Jesus, was Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother. Andrew found first his own brother Simon. So what does Andrew do? He immediately goes and finds Simon. He says to Simon, We have found the Messiah, which translated means the Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at Simon and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Now the name Simon means God has heard the prayers of my parents. But when Jesus meets Simon, Jesus says, I'm not calling you Simon. I'm going to call you Cephas. I'm going to call you Peter, which means rock. See, it was Jesus' intention from the very beginning to use Peter as one of the foundational pillars of his new synagogue called the church. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.20 that the church has been built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. And that's not Old Testament prophets there because notice apostles comes first. Okay. Christ gifted to the church apostles and prophets, missionaries and preachers. In Galatians 2.9 Paul writes James and Cephas and John who were pillars of the church. So that was where they had their first meeting. A year's gone by. He's now teaching at the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum when he sees Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Now, while Jesus was teaching, the scripture tells us that Andrew and Peter were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. James and John were in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. Now, interestingly, there are two different terms translated as nets. That's interesting. That's important. Andrew and Peter's net was uh, what we call a small fishing net. Okay, the word here is uh, amphiblistron. We get our word amphibious from this. Amphiblastron. Small net. It's the kind of net you can't, one guy cast to collect bait fish. And more than likely, uh, since all fishing, all major fishing was done at night. Uh, Peter and uh, Andrew were collecting bait fish for the next day, but then there's James and John, who, after a long night of fishing, were now mending their nets. But their nets, de on, which is a general term for all kinds of nets, in other words, all they were mending all different kinds of nets. So they were most likely uh, mending. The amphiblastron, uh, or the small nets, they were also mending or uh, putting back together, restoring the larger dragnets, what the scripture calls the uh, saganei, the saganei nets. Okay. Remember those large drag nets that get drugged by two boats. And notice they were mending. That word mending, very interesting. Cortizo means to restore something to its proper place. To restore. Now, as Jesus taught, the crowd grew. Luke 5 says, He saw two boats, this is verse 2 and 3, two boats lying at the edge of the lake. The fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which belonged to Simon, and said, Put it out a little way from the land. Jesus sits down and begins to teach the people from the boat. So the crowd got so big, Jesus had to go out, wade out into the water, climb into Simon's boat, telling, "Take it out a little way, so that he could use that, and the, the water would form a natural amphitheater uh, for his voice to carry, and so on, so the crowd could hear him teach." Now, after the teaching is done and the people have gone home, Jesus tells Peter, "I want you to take the boats further out and cast the nets." Now you have to understand, they fished all night. And they had caught nothing. But Peter hesitantly obeys. And when Peter attempts to draw the nets, they're so filled with fish that he had to call out to James and John to bring their boat to help pull the fish in. Discipling involves going. Folks, if you don't go to them, they're not coming to you. It is your responsibility to go to them. you want to make disciples you got to go okay don't sit back and say well you know god didn't lead anybody to me that's not god's way well i don't know anybody come on you all know anybody you know all kinds of people you have to be willing to get out of your comfort zone and go engage them now the second observation matthew makes of jesus discipling ministry in matthew 419 and 21 is this he said to them Peter and Andrew, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Skip down to the back half of verse 21. And he called them James and John. So, he was going, now he's calling. Discipling involves calling. He called them, Matthew says. The word called, kaleo, it's an authoritative summons. Placing someone under all the duties and responsibilities of another person. So when he was calling them, he was calling them to follow. He was calling them to take on some duty. Question is, to what did Jesus call them? Now I need everybody to pay real close attention. If you haven't been paying close attention, do it now. Because this is where a lot of problem comes in with the gospel narratives and the disciples. In In the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there is multiple callings of the disciples. In fact, this is not the first time Jesus has called these men. Now you think, well, it's just four different things, four different uh, uh, recordings of the same event. No, it's not. Because what we're going to see is that there is a call to salvation, there's a call to schooling, and there's a call to service. Now, discipleship involves all three. Discipleship begins with a call to salvation. Discipleship continues with a call to schooling. Discipleship reaches its goal when there's a calling to service. And 2,000 years later, folks, the calls of discipleship have not changed. You can't be a disciple unless you're genuinely saved. And if you're genuinely saved, then you have a responsibility to be schooled in the Word of God. And you're being schooled because ultimately you need to serve. Now, I want to take you through these three callings. The first calling is a call to salvation. We see this in John chapter 1, 35 to 51. Jesus called Andrew and John in John 1, 39, saying what? Come and you will see. In John 1, 43, he called Philip. Philip, follow me. The callings of Andrew, John, Philip, and the other twelve all occurred during the first year of Jesus' ministry. John 2.11 reports the beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cain of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples, here's the key word, believed in him. That word believe. They repented and they placed their faith in the gospel. The second calling is the call to schooling as recorded here in Matthew four nineteen and twenty one and also in Luke five one to eleven. Here Jesus says follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now the word follow is actually two Greek words, dute opiso, which means it's a call to come after someone. Come after me. By calling them to follow him, Jesus was inviting them, come after me, come live with me, come learn from me. Now let me ask you a question. How much time do you spend with Jesus? How much time do you devote to being with Jesus and learning from him? Think about it. Because if you've answered the call to salvation, now he's calling you to schooling. He's calling you to come and learn from him. Connected to that phrase, he says, I will make you fishers of men. He's calling them to be schooled in being fishers of men. By trade, they were fishermen. But Jesus, speaking in terms they understand, says, I want to make you into fishers of men. I know you know how to fish. But do you know how to fish for men? You know, a fisherman gathers what? Fish. But fishers of men gather people. And he says, in time, I'm going to teach you how to gather people to me. And ultimately, those people gathered to Jesus are going to form his church. Now, you know, when you think about fishing for fish and fishing for men, there's three similarities. Both require patience. Both require perseverance. And both require some prowess. How often did Peter and the rest spend all night fishing only to return the next morning with empty nets. And so too the arduous task of making disciples will sometimes result in no response. But like Peter who obeyed Jesus when he said to go out again and cast the nets we need to respond in obedience and continue casting that gospel net. And just as fishermen had to mend their nets or restore their nets, so too as fishers of men, we need to restore believers. In Galatians 6.1, Paul writes, Brethren, if any one of you is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore that one in a spirit of gentleness. That word rendered restored is the same word rendered mending here in Matthew 4.21. It's that word "cartizo." That's what our responsibility is. We're to mend one another. So again, we're supposed to be casting the net of the gospel out and then those fish that are in that net that are believers, we've got to be mending them as well. Now the third calling was a call to service. This doesn't happen until Matthew chapter 10 in verse 1 and also Mark chapter 3, 13 to 15. In Matthew 10, 1, Jesus summoned the 12. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. In Mark three thirteen to 15, he adds, He summoned those he himself wanted. They came to him. He appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons, and he appointed the 12. So here they're going from schooling now to service. Notice he called them first to salvation, then to schooling, and finally to service. Now, you say, well, that was just the 12. Oh, no. Because as we work our way through the Gospels, we find that after the initial 12, then he sent another 70. So there were at least 70 others who were being schooled and going out in the service. And this was the pattern that Jesus set and continued and continued after he returned to heaven. So discipling involves going. You are not going to make disciples unless you're going out. And it involves calling, okay? You're not going to make disciples unless you're calling them. You're inviting them. But then disciple involves following. Look at Matthew 4, 20 and 22. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Again, the corollary passage in Luke 5 reports that he called them to schooling, and that was on the heels of teaching the crowd from the fishing boat. And I love Luke 11, or Luke 5.11. When they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Matthew reports that Andrew, Peter, James, and John immediately followed him. Now the word immediately implies that these men acted without hesitation, without delay. Now remember, these guys are already saved. Okay? A year earlier. They've heard Jesus, they've been with Jesus, they've seen Jesus, okay? So it's not like they're completely unfamiliar with But now he's, he's, giving, he's calling them to something different. Come and follow me and I will teach you how to be fishers of men. I'm going to teach you something. And then they drop their nets, they disembark from the boat, and they follow. The word follow here is different. The word Jesus used to follow me is different from the follow. The word here is akolothea, which means... They began acting according to the example of Jesus to the point of sharing in his suffering. That's what it meant. Okay. They began following his example even to the point of suffering. How little do we know today what it means to genuinely follow Jesus? We'll follow Jesus as long as it's convenient. We'll follow Jesus as long as it fits in with our time. We'll follow Jesus as long as it's, you know... When it's convenient for me to get together. No. Following Jesus is immediately doing what he wants. Doing what he says. When he says, how he says, where he says, and so on and so forth. Even to the point of following him in his suffering. Oh, no, Pastor, come on, I'm not going to suffer. Well, then you're not going to be a disciple. They followed Jesus. They prioritized him over their business and over their family. They left their nets. They left the boat. They left their father. Leaving business and families, they followed him. In other words, Jesus has to be more important than your earthly ties. Okay? Now, understand in the first century A.D., fishermen were not poor. The fishermen were among the more economically mobile of the village culture. These were wealthy men. Mark 1.20, immediately he called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants. And went away to follow him. The fact that they had hired servants implies they were wealthy. But when they left it behind, they were making an economic sacrifice. Sometimes following Jesus requires you to make a sacrifice. It's not always going to be convenient. Now the question we have to ask, when they left their families, when they left their business, was Jesus calling them to forsake their families? Was he calling them to quit their jobs? In short, no, he was not. He did not tell them to forsake their families. He didn't tell them to quit their jobs. Okay. God places a high priority on family and on work. Right in the Ten Commandments, Exodus twenty twelve: 12, honor your father and mother. Okay. So when John and James left Zebedee they were not dishonoring their father. That's important to understand. They did so in a way that still honored their parents. And 2 Thessalonians 3:10 says, if anyone's not willing to work, guess what? He shouldn't eat. So the fact that he's calling these men doesn't mean that he wants them to quit their job because he expects them to what? continue to eat. They've got families. Listen, the Bible says if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an infidel. So obviously he wasn't telling none to put their families in danger and, you know, forsake them and let them starve. There always has to be a balance. Prioritizing Jesus over your family doesn't mean you, you'd be rude to your family. It doesn't mean you forsake your family. And it doesn't mean you necessarily have to quit your job. Now, let's talk about the ministry of Jesus. Jesus was like a circuit-riding preacher of the bygone years. So, as a circuit riding minister, if you will, in other words, he he went from town to town, place to place, that meant that he was going to school them on the road. As they're going to learn from him, they're going to learn with him as he travels from place to place, town to town. So there were going to be times when they would be away from their families, would be away from their jobs for extended periods. But there were other times when their wives traveled with them. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9.5, Don't we have the right to take along a believing wife? The rest of the apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and even Cephas do. Now, at this juncture, the wives aren't traveling with them, but later the wives did travel with them. And as long as they were in Capernaum, Jesus stayed in whose house? Peter's, where Peter's wife and mother-in-law lived. Okay, So anytime he's in Capernaum, guess what? They're all living in their homes. They're living with their families. They're doing their business. But there would be times when they would leave their business, leave their families to go out on the road with Jesus. Now it's interesting that in calling four fishermen, he didn't call four poor people, he called four wealthy people to follow him who were able to what? They could afford to take time away from that business without putting their families in danger. By the way, you know not not many today are being schooled in such a way, okay? You know we, we can learn the Word of God, we can be trained in the Word of God and never really have to leave our homes, if you will, leave our locales, leave our uh, local church, okay. You know, back in those days, it was a little different, obviously, you know uh, we have, We have so much we have no excuse not to be schooled, okay. Also, Jesus' ministry travel was seasonal. He wasn't on the road every day, every month of the year. The rainy season in Galilee lasted from December through March. During that time, it would rain 30 to 50 days. Roads would have been turned to mud. Rivers and creek beds would have overflowed. Those men weren't traveling at that time. They'd have been back home. They'd have been back at their, with their business and with their families. In fact, he said, well, could they fish in December through March? Well, it, the coldest it gets is about 50 degrees, okay, between December and March. Well, it's the rainy season. That Don't stop fishermen, okay? Uh, you know, fishermen go out regardless of the weather. And, uh, you know, recall the many times we see them out in the boat. They're, what's Jesus doing when they're in the boat? He's sleeping. Why is he sleeping? Because they go out and fish when? At night. Okay, And they're out there fishing all night. And what happened? Storms would come up. Why? Because it's the rainy season. Okay. So, you know, yes, they're still going back to their jobs at times. They're still working at times. You know, But they've reprioritized things. Okay, Yes, listen, you've got responsibility to your families. You've got responsibility to your jobs. But you've got to prioritize Jesus first. You've got to put him at the top. You don't work Jesus in. You work everything around him. even after Jesus resurrected, and he told them to go to Galilee. In John 21, what did Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, and John do? Well, while they're waiting for Jesus, they went to work. They didn't sit around and say, well, listen, I'm a Jesus follower. I'm just going to sit here and take an extended vacation. While they're waiting, they went to work. And they're out all night fishing. And then the next morning, the sun rises up, and they see a guy out on the beach. Mm, Something smells good. Yeah, I guess so. Chef Jesus is cooking breakfast. I bet that's the best breakfast they ever ate. But there was Jesus on the beach, waiting for them to finish their job. The point is, these men were not called to forsake their families or their businesses, but to prioritize Jesus over them. Jesus speaks to this issue in Luke 14, 26 to 27 and 33. You can turn there if you'd like. I'm going to spend a couple minutes there. Luke fourteen twenty six to twenty seven and verse thirty three. Now we have to remember that the gospel narratives don't give us every word that Jesus said. They don't give us every place where Jesus went. You know, we're we're getting the highlight reel. And I know sometimes when you read through the gospels, you think all Jesus did was walk around from town to town and teaching, and that's not the case. Okay. Uh, Much of it he spent right there in Capernaum, okay. especially from December to March. He really can go anywhere. But in Luke 14, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple, so that none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Now you read that at first glance. And it seems he's contradicting himself. I mean, aren't we supposed to honor our father and mothers? Aren't husbands to love their wives and wives to love their husbands? Aren't they to love their children? Aren't children to love and honor their parents? Yes. So then how can they possibly hate father mother, wife, children, brother and sisters? You have to understand, Jesus is teaching this and speaking with hyperbole. His point is he's using shock value to make the listener stop and think, consider, what does discipleship mean? What does it require? He's making the point that a disciple's love for Jesus has to be so high that your love for your family pales in comparison. In fact, if we were to set our love for Jesus and our love for our family side by side, it would, you know, our love for Jesus would be so great it would make our love for our, our family look like hate. You know, there are times when your family members are going to pressure you to to not put Jesus first. Friends, you've got to put Jesus first. All right? You've got to prioritize him. He is not playing second fiddle. He is Lord. Okay? Regardless of the relation, if they want you to do something contrary to Jesus, you've got to choose Jesus. Alternatively, there may be times when you as a disciple don't want to speak the truth because, well, what is my family, what are my friends going to think? Listen, if you place human relationship above divine relationship, you're going to pay a consequence. You're a disciple. Jesus is the priority. You've got to speak the truth in love, but you've got to speak the truth. And besides loving Jesus more than our families, we've got to love Jesus more than we love ourselves And let's be honest, most of us love ourselves a whole lot. He says, bear your cross and follow me. He wants bearing your cross doesn't mean dealing with difficult people. Bearing your cross means giving up your hopes and interest in the things of this world to put Jesus first. If you're bearing your cross, that means you're submitting and obeying his authority. If you're habitually not submitting to Jesus, if you're habitually not obeying Jesus, then you're not a disciple. And so your love for yourself, and we all love ourselves, but when we compare it to the love we have for Jesus, it ought to look like we hate ourselves. Again, Luke 9.23, If you wish to come after me, deny yourself, take up the cross daily, follow me. John Krasmick says this about self-denial. He says, it's turning away from the idolatry and self-centeredness and every attempt to orient your life by the dictates of self-interest. What does that mean? It means start renouncing your pride. Start exalting God. Put God's kingdom and His righteousness first, and then your desires and interest. Because again, if you're living for yourself, if you're not following Jesus, you're not a disciple. And a disciple's a what? Christian. He also says you've got to give up your possessions. He's not calling you, though, to take a vow of poverty. He's again using hyperbole to stress the point. He wants you to understand you've got a choice. Which master are you serving? Are you serving God or are you serving possessions or wealth? No one can serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You can't serve God and your material possessions or resources. Now, is Jesus condemning wealth? No. But he's warning us against serving it. Wealth is what controls your life. First Timothy six nine to ten. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Because money, no, the love of money. That word love is sacrifice for money. It is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Friend, there is no middle ground. You can't negotiate God and and wealth. You can't say, well, God, I'll serve you 50 and wealth 50. It's not a 60-40. God, I'll give you 60 and wealth 40. It's not an 80-20. No, one is all in on God or you're all in on your wealth. Again, he's not condemning wealth. But you can't be controlled by it. That was the point for for James and John and Peter and Andrew. These guys are wealthy cats. They're making a choice not to be controlled by their wealth. Man, we're we're, we're having a great season. Man, we're really making... They're willing to put that on hold to learn from Jesus. You know, serving wealth does not produce godliness but greed. It puts greed on the throne. The parable of the rich man in Luke 12. The land of a rich man was very productive and he began saying to himself... What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, I'll build bigger ones. I'll store all my grain and my goods, and I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. The problem is six times in that parable, the man talks about himself his crops, his barn, his grains, his goods, his soul. How about you? It's my house, my car, my clothes, my bank account, my this, my that, my friends, my, my, my. You don't have a clue of reality. The psalmist says the earth is the Lord's and all it contains the world and all those who dwell in it. It's not your house, it's not your car, it's not your clothes, it's not your bank account. Ultimately, it's God's. God's allowed you to garner those things and gain those things. They all belong to God at the end of the day. And God can take them all away if he wants. You need to start viewing God as the owner of everything in your quote-unquote possession. And that you're just the steward of those things. So how are you using the things that God has given you? point is, friends, you've got to follow. When the call comes, you've got to follow. Everyone who professes Jesus, everybody here listening, Ask yourself, are you a disciple? Again, I said it, genuine Christians are disciples. And being a disciple doesn't simply mean you're learning about Jesus. It means you're acting like Jesus. You're following him even to the point of you're willing to suffer for him. Jesus says in John 8, 12, He who will follow me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John ten four. Follow him because sheep follow him because they know his voice. John twelve twenty six. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Friends, you need to consider today whether or not you're following him. Have you followed him in salvation? Are you following him in schooling? Are you learning from him? Are you learning of him? And are you following him in service? You know, when Jesus called those first disciples, he set in motion a pattern. Before leaving for heaven, Jesus commanded those disciples to go and make more disciples, who in turn would make more. Case in point, Paul discipled Timothy, Timothy discipled others, and those others discipled others. 2 Timothy 2, 2, The things you've learned from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's two words there I want you to think about. Entrust and able. Entrust. Place for safekeeping. When as disciples, we are to place in others, we're to give something to others for safekeeping. What is that? The things we have learned. Well, I'm not a teacher. Doesn't matter. Jesus isn't asking you to be a a quote-unquote teacher. He's asking you to share with others what you've learned. You can talk about the football game. You can talk about the baseball game. You can talk about the hockey game. You can talk about this collection and that collection. You can talk about this movie and that movie. You can talk about all the things you like, but have you ever talked about Jesus? Have you ever talked about the things of Scripture? Listen, if anything, talk about the sermon. I hope you've at least learned something from that. And share that with somebody else. And then Abel, Hakanos. We're for competence. In other words, we're to teach it competently to others. You know, we're not just, you know, oh yeah, well, it could be this or it might be that. No, you're supposed to be competent. Be confident as well. This is what the scripture says, and so on. This is the process of discipleship. Folks, the growth of a church is dependent on the discipleship of in the, within the church. If you're not discipling others, believers, you are failing to do the Great Commission. And the church suffers for it. So I challenge you, who are you discipling? Who are you sharing the Lord with? Who are you, you know, again, it doesn't have to be an official Bible study. It doesn't have to be an official, you know, uh, I'm a teacher, you're a student, I'm a rabbi, you're a disciple type thing. But you know the person you know at least someone that you're taking time with, maybe if it's just coffee or a meal or whatever it may be, but sometime when you're sitting down and you're investing one-on-one with this person, you know and, and teaching them, explaining to them, this is what the Bible says. This is what this means, this is what that means. That's what we're to do. So I challenge you to think about that, pray about that. And if you don't have somebody you're discipling, pray to God that the Lord would place somebody on your heart, some younger believer that you could take under your wing and teach and train so that they too, if they're not saved, might be called to be saved. And if they are called to be saved, then they might be called to school and then eventually called themselves to serve. Father God, Lord, I come before you in the name of Jesus Christ. And I come before you, Father, thanking you for giving us this word. Thanking you for the opportunity to preach and proclaim this word. Thanking you, Father, for laying these things out before us to see and to examine. To be able to have a bird's eye view into the past and to see this discipling ministry of your Son. And that, Father, you set forth a pattern for us to follow. And, Lord, I confess that we don't follow it like we ought to. That, Lord, we have dropped the ball. We have failed the Great Commission. And so, Father, forgive us. Father... I pray that through your spirit you would poke and prod us. Place somebody upon our heart that we can disciple. Place somebody in our path as we go. That, Father, we can share with them. Even if it just begins with just the gospel. But that we can go beyond that and begin to train and teach them. Titus, You tell us in Titus that the older men are to teach the younger men and the older women are to teach the younger women. Oh, Father, I pray, pray to you that you would raise up in our midst. Older men and older women who would take the younger under their wings and teach them and train them in the scriptures. Because that is the lifeblood of the church. That is the means of reproducing sheep. That is what you've commissioned us and called us to do. Father, through your Spirit, give us, equip us, endow us, and engage us in that ministry until you call us home to your presence. We again commit this to you in the Son's name. Amen.